Welcome back to the program. Many of you know the legendary story of the group of blind men who touched the elephant to learn what it was like. Each one feels a different part, but only one part, such as the side or the tusk or the tail. Then they compare notes and learn that they're in complete disagreement about what they experienced. Such is the story of Richard Nixon. So much has been written about Nixon. Much of it, as David Greenberg pointed out in the New York Times recently, has come in waves. There was the period after the resignation of the bad Nixon, after his death, the better Nixon, and now those trying to pull all the threads together. Perhaps Bill Clinton put it best in his eulogy for Nixon when he said that the day of judging President Nixon on anything less than his entire life and career must come to a close. My guest, Evan Thomas, has tried to do just that in his new book, Being Nixon. Evan Thomas is the author of nine previous books, including The Wise Men, The War Lovers, Ike's Bluff, and Robert Kennedy. He was a writer and correspondent for 33 years at Time and Newsweek. It is my pleasure to welcome Evan Thomas back to this program to talk about his newest work, Being Nixon, A Man Divided. Evan Thomas, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me back. It's great to have you here. It is difficult, given our, our, the polarization and attitudes about Nixon and so many different aspects of his life, to really look at that totality as Bill Clinton talked about in his eulogy. Uh, it sure is. Uh, look, most people, I'm Republican and Democrat, don't like Richard Nixon. They have People who are old enough to remember Watergate have a bitter, bitter taste, and Nixon was not a likable person. He just wasn't. You watch tapes of him. There's not much to like. But I, I think that story, the sort of unlikable Nixon story, has been told and told and told. I tried to get to a different level, you know, to try to understand what it was like to actually be Nixon. I don't pretend that I was in his brain or you can get in his brain, but there is an amazing trail of evidence, 3,000 hours of tapes, 1,000-page memoir, a lot of handwritten notes from the Oval. You know, presidents leave behind an amazing paper trail. H.R. Haldeman, Nixon's chief of staff, right. took notes on all of his conversations uh, with Nixon. So there are hundreds of oral histories. So you can, or at least I think, you can, you can get under his skin and, and into his head and get some sense of what it was like to be him. I, it's unbelievably complicated. I would be lying if I reduced it <laughs> to a sentence or two. Uh, other than you know the, the title of my subtitle of my book, A Man Divided, but endlessly fascinating. This guy is the great American novel, precisely because of his complexity. His story is deeply American and, and I think deeply fascinating. One of the ways in which he was divided, again to your subtitle, is that there seemed to be this disconnect between who he was and how he perceived himself, that he wanted to be in some ways the kind of person that was one of the wise men that, that you've written about in the past. And that's not who he was necessarily. It doesn't make what he tried to do, particularly in the international arena, any less valid. It's just that it was coming from such a complicated place. Yeah, I, I find this really poignant. There are these, uh, Nixon, late at night, he liked to be alone. And you go off to the Lincoln sitting room or his hideaway in the old EOB or up at Camp David, with his yellow pad, what his, uh, his aides called his, they used to call it yellow, yellow legal pad, his best friend. And he'd take his best friend and he'd make notes. And the notes that have survived at, or at the Nixon Library show him using words like joyful and serene and confident. 
inspiring. These are words that we don't really associate with Richard Nixon, but Nixon was using it to inspire himself, describing the president he wants to be, at least that's what he lays out. You know, look, cynics can say, oh, that's just the way he wanted to be seen by the press. He was really just this, you know, Machiavellian, malevolent figure. I don't get that reading these notes. Uh, yes, he did want to be seen that way. He wanted Time magazine or whatever to write about him that way. But he also wanted to be that person. He really did want to be that person. He failed to be that person, or, he, or rather he couldn't sustain it, but he wanted to be that person. That awkwardness goes right on through to the end. In his farewell speech, and his goodbye speech to, to the White House staff, when he decides to, he makes this quote from, from Teddy Roosevelt, and he prefaces it by saying, you know, I, I, I read books, even though, you know, people think that I'm not educated, but I, I read books. I mean, it's so awkward Painful. and uncomfortable. It's just, it's just so awkward and so unnecessary. And, and he's a massive confusion. So a lot of what Nixon is doing is blustering and play acting. This is one of the problems with the tapes. He is awful on those tapes. And he said, said some really bad stuff. I mean, yeah, most, most of your listeners know about this. He's anti-Semitic. And he says some racist stuff, too. So I'm not minimizing that. But, but Nixon was an actor. He's blustering. You know, he swears a lot. It's like he's not very good at swearing. Linda Johnson, he was good at swearing. <laughs> but, but Nixon is like he's putting on this macho man, trying to impress Haldeman and Ehrlichman and Kissinger about what a tough guy he is. He was actually a kind of shy, closet intellectual. And one thing I did ask about Nixon Library is I asked him to show me Nixon's private library, and they did. And so I went through all these books he read, heavy tomes about political philosophy, a lot of biography, underlined. I mean, he spent hours reading. He read way more than modern politicians, way more than normal presidents, partly because he didn't like to talk to people. He had a lot of free time, but also because he was very intellectually curious. He's always denouncing intellectuals. I don't like intellectuals. I'd rather talk to an athlete, he would say. Intellectuals are effeminate. Well, look, one thing, he's a terrible athlete, but he was very much of an intellectual. And he, liked, he actually sort of liked intellectuals, although he pretended not to, who is first domestic advisor is Daniel Patrick Moynihan, a Harvard professor. Nixon was always saying, ah, no more Harvard people. Get rid of those bastards. No more Harvard people. No. But then who does he hire for his first two top aides, Moynihan and Henry Kissinger? Another Harvard professor. So, you know, with Nixon... <laughs> Complicated is too simple a word. Right. I mean, there's this, on the one hand, being intellectual and doing this, and yet feeling the need to be one of the guys and swearing. There's this constant air that he's putting on to try and fit in wherever he is, and none of it works very well. It must have been exhausting. You know, mm. he couldn't sleep. The other thing is an insomniac. And the effort to be Richard Nixon must have been absolutely draining. I mean, I think how anxious I am going to cocktail parties. Imagine Nixon. I mean, Nixon sometimes was so awkward that he could not, literally could not speak. Uh, he would spin his hands around. He, they're famous. There are millions of stories about his awkwardness. I'll tell you a couple, and they're kind of hard to believe. Uh, Mrs. Kennedy, Jackie right. Kennedy, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, runs into Richard Nixon at Martin Luther King's funeral in 1968, and Nixon's so undone, he says, oh, Mrs. Kennedy, this must bring back memories. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's just painful. And, uh, you know, he, the, the, the Nixon leaving uh, Charles de Gaulle's funeral, President de Gaulle's funeral in France says, this is a great day for France. 
Well, he just he's just a blurter. He just can't help himself. He's anxious and he's blurting things out and it's awkward and it's embarrassing and he knows he's bad at it, which is why he avoids people. He he cut he with state dinners, he so disliked small talk that he had an aide stopwatch time state dinners to try to get them under an hour. They got it down to fifty eight minutes. And he cut out the soup course because he spilled soup on himself. He's physically awkward and spilled soup on himself. And then he said, well, real men don't eat soup. <laughs> you know, you can't make it up. Talk a little bit about his sense of self-awareness, because that goes to the heart also of some of these contradictions. One of the criticisms of Nixon over the years has been that he was very insincere, that he was faking sincerity, that, that really that he was a good actor. And yet, when you look at these awkward moments, you see nothing but a bad actor. Yeah, I really wrestled with this. Uh, this whole issue of self-awareness, I think, is critical to, to understanding Nixon and to who Nixon was. It's complicated. I can't, I'm sorry, I keep using that word. Uh, because he was very self-conscious. He's thinking about himself a lot, the way you know, any anxious, shy person is very self-conscious. And in his memoirs, he will write about his anxiety and... And he will say it's actually it's sort of good for him. It gives him gives him a kind of a fuel, and that's true. You know, anxiety was a really kind of powerful rocket fuel for Nixon. But he's not self-aware in the sense of realizing that his angers and his resentments are going to come back and haunt him. This is the terrible. This is the tragedy of Richard Nixon. This guy, this very shy boy, who becomes the most political, powerful political person in the world, in 1972, wins by an overwhelming landslide, uh, destroys himself because he can't help himself from lashing out at his enemies, and he just doesn't realize he's doing it. You, I've spent hours and hours and hours reading, listening, reading about what he's saying and thinking in, in the Oval Office. This just is, his self-awareness is almost zero. I found a couple of places where he really he goes, oh, after Cambodia, after Kent State, he said, I, I did this, didn't I? So there's a moment. Another moment, they catch the Joint Chiefs spying on the president. Spying on the president. They had a yeoman, a naval yeoman inside the White House stealing stuff. And Nixon goes, this lesion, he calls it, this lesion on the presidency, I did that. And what he means is he's created such a world of secrecy that his own Joint Chiefs are spying on it. So there's a little moment of, of self-awareness. But boy, it's rare there, I, I, maybe I missed him, but I don't think so. Uh, he, just, he just couldn't see himself. Now, you could say that all great, many great men are not self-aware. When you think about it, it's, if, you, if you are too self-aware, how can you go out and try to save the world? You know, if you, it, it takes a certain kind of grandiosity, as they say, or even delusions of grandeur to think that you're great enough to run the United States or be a great world leader. So a lot of a lot of political leaders have a kind of blinkered aspect. They, they don't really see themselves that well because they can't. They can't afford to. There are exceptions, Lincoln being a, being a famous one. So, okay, Nixon has company, but, but it's more so with Nixon. And, uh, uh, and really not until the very end. He's leaving the White House. This just blew my mind. His, you know, he's, he's resigned August 9, 1974. He's giving this tearful farewell to the staff right before he gets in the helicopter, and he says at the very end, he says, I'm paraphrasing, if you hate your enemies, it will destroy you. Yeah, let, and let, you feel like shouting, hello, yeah. you know, let's, too late. Let's take a second here and listen to that. 
Always give your best. Never get discouraged. Never be petty. Always remember, others may hate you. But those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. And then you destroy yourself. I mean, that's, that's amazing. Oh, oh, my God. He's about to get on the helicopter to fly into exile. Where was that self-awareness when Watergate was happening? And when he's bugging her, he's, he's not doing it himself, but when his, his subordinates are eavesdropping and wiretapping and breaking the law, where, to get the, to get the president's enemies, where is that level of self-awareness? It's just missing. The, the mirror image of that quote is coupled with the paranoia, not necessarily as you've talked about, cl- not the clinical paranoia, but, but his fearfulness, because this comes out in his conversations much, much later with David Frost. Let's listen to this for just a few seconds. Yeah. I don't go with the idea that, there was, that what brought me down was a coup, a conspiracy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I brought myself down. I gave him a sword. And they stuck it in, and they twisted it with relish. And I guess if I had been in their position, I'd have done the same thing. A famous moment. Now, that is always a backstory. He made those remarks when his aides pressured him to, to do that. There was a big behind-the-scenes debate. Uh, Frost said, I want some contrition. He let it be known. I want, you know, I want an apology here to the American people. Nixon didn't want to do it. Some of his aides didn't want to do it. Other aides said, Mr. President, Mr. Ex-President, you, you have to do this. You've got to give them something. So that was a prearranged mea culpa. You may note there's no confession of moral guilt in there. Right. He's not saying he did anything immoral. It's more kind of tactical. I gave him the sword, and they stuck it in, and I would have too. It was all kind of power dynamics, not that he did anything morally wrong. I don't think Nixon ever believed that he did do anything morally wrong, although he did. Right. I mean, it's the coda to that that's so remarkable. I guess I would have done the same thing. <laughs> he can never get away. I mean, it's so funny. Think about it. I'm glad you pointed it out because, you know, even in this moment of contrition of being about as contrite as Nixon could be, he still is the guy who is thinking about revenge. I would have done it too. And this is a, a you know, this is a leitmotif that just runs through with Nixon. People think of Nixon as a great dirty trickster. In Nixon's own mind, he was keeping up with the Kennedys. He believed that the 1960 election had been stolen for him. And there's, and there's some evidence to support him. In, in Illinois, at least, the vote was stolen. And that he, Nixon, had been forbearing and gracious by not challenging the election. And I think that's, that's true. But he thought the Kennedys you know, were masterminds. They're good at dirty tricks. And he was just catching up. He always wanted to have a... The Democrats had this guy named Dick Tuck, who was a prankster, a, a political prankster. And Nixon was always saying, why can't we have Dick Tuck? Why can't we have our own Dick Tuck? They finally hired one named Donald Segretti, and that, you know, they got caught in Watergate doing kind of underhanded things to the Muskie campaign and others. But this is Nixon playing catch-up ball. He, he's not inventing dirty tricks. He's, he's exaggerating the Kennedys' skill at this. But the Kennedys did have some skill. I, I, I wrote a biography of Bobby Kennedy. Bobby Kennedy was pretty good at political dirty tricks. 
There were two seemingly seminal moments with Nixon, and I wonder if you think that, that they're related in any way, because they're moments when, when kind of the chips were down politically. One is his decision not to contest the 1960 election, when he certainly could have done that and decided against it, as you just said. The other was the decision not to burn the tapes. Both of yeah. those moments arguably would have been life-changing for Nixon. Yeah, burning the tapes thing is really interesting. He was sick. He had pneumonia when it came out publicly that the tapes existed. And there was a debate, and some people, uh, Agnew, Spiro Agnew, his vice president, suggested he burn the tapes to have a bonfire. Nixon didn't do it. He, I, it's hard to know exactly why. I think he, there was, well, some lawyers said, hey, you're going to get nailed for obstruction of justice if you, if you do it. There was a very narrow window before the subpoenas arrived when technically they could have done it. But Nixon also wanted those tapes to preserve them for the record. He was always worried about Henry Kissinger, that Kissinger was putting out the story that he, Kissinger, was the good guy, the dove, the restraining force. Nixon was the bad guy. And he was afraid that Kissinger would write the history and that he, Nixon, had to be able to rebut Kissinger's history with tapes, with evidence. They actually, Nixon and Haldeman destroyed, talked about destroying the tapes in April 1973, before their existence was known. And Nixon, it's an amazing tape, Nixon actually gives the order to Haldeman to destroy the tapes. And then you could hear him saying, oh, Kissinger, he remembers Kissinger. And then they start, well, no, we should keep some tapes. They end up not destroying any because a couple of weeks later, Haldeman gets fired. Watergate is blowing up around them. But it was so interesting to me, it's such an insight into why Nixon thinks He's about to give the order to destroy the tanks, does give the order, and then remembers Henry Kissinger and his rivalry with Kissinger. Because he was also very aware of, of writing his memoirs after he left office and, and wanted the tapes for that, both in terms of the historical context, as you say, but the other part of Nixon is that writing those books, writing those memoirs, was his primary source of income when he was out of office. It, it was. There's a lot of tragedy here, too, and, and the story's more complicated. So many of, of your viewers will remember that, that, that famous video of Nixon saying, I am not a crook. I'm not a crook. And the animation, of course, is that he is a crook and that he's venal. Nixon hated accusations that he was personally trying to profit because he had always said, I've been in public service all my life. I never let a dollar touch your hands. He's been scrupulous about this. And yet there were these accusations that he was trying to personally profit. His lawyer had backdated a document and they'd spent lavishly on fixing up uh, his California house and his Florida house. Most of that was just Haldeman keeping up with John LBJ, doing what LBJ had done, fixing up the, the outside White Houses. But Nixon's the point here is that Nixon's own personal view of himself was that he was not venal. He was not, and he was really hurt by the suggestion that he, that he was a crook. He really didn't see himself that way at all. And I think the evidence shows that he really wasn't. Uh, for instance, after he left the White House, talk about money, uh, he refused to take speaking fees. <laughs> he refused to buck rate. I think Mr. Bill and Hillary Clinton have made $25 million right. since the beginning of, 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 of 2014 on speaking fees. Nixon, zero. He wrote books instead, and he made a decent living off of that. But Nixon's own, again, Nixon's own personal view was that he was not cashing in. And yet uh, they were very, uh, pretty quick to sell ambassadorships when he was president. They sure were. That's, that's, not, uh, that's not for Nixon's personal gain. That's to get money uh, for his campaign. Nixon wanted to have a huge war chest in 72 
so that he could crush the Democrats and create really his own political party, kind of a new conservative party with, with, uh, with the conservative Democrats and, and moderates and, and, and Republicans. Nixon had this idea. Nixon hated the establishment, hated the establishment. And he had this idea of creating a new establishment. No more Harvard, you know, no more New York, no more media. This is going to be a Midwest, far west, state school, uh, pro-Nixon establishment. They never got even close to doing it because Watergate blew up all, all around them. But Nixon was trying to run up the score in 72 so he would have the political power to do this. To run up that score, he needed a lot of money, and so they sold ambassadorships. Now, I have to say, he's not the first president to sell an ambassadorship. Right. They maybe are a little less subtle about it, <laughs> but people have been buying ambassadorships for a long time and, and uh, up into the present day. Obama's, many of Obama's ambassadors are major donors. I want to talk about the politics of Richard Nixon a little bit, because you just touched on something that I think is is really a core of that, that it's less kind of the ideological attitude that we see today and more this inside versus outside, and that, that he did see himself as, as the outsider, and so much of the silent majority, the Southern strategy, so much of Nixon's political activity comes out of that insider-outsider attitude and him seeing himself as an outsider and friend of the outsider. Yeah. No, it's critical to his political success. I mean, the story I, I like to tell is that when he gets to college, Whittier, little Whittier College, there's a cool guy's fraternity, the Franklins, all the cool guys. Nixon starts a fraternity for the uncool guys. Partly the simple math. There are more uncool guys in school than there are cool guys. And Nixon wants to run for office, and he gets elected class president running on what they called the non-orgs, the, the kids who are not in an organization. There are more of them. This is the direct ancestor of the so-called silent majority. This is a phrase that Nixon used in a speech, so his phrase, he thought it up. In 1969, when he's appealing to the silent majority of Americans, who are not shouting and yelling and rioting on campuses or, you know, not on Wall Street, not at Harvard, the quiet, silent majority that believes in patriotism and order and is against permissiveness. That was a very appealing message, and Nixon wrote it to one of the largest landslides in history in 1972. He won every state except for, I think, Massachusetts and D.C. He won 35% of Democrats. Think about that. Republican won 35% of Democratic votes. He did it by appealing to outsiders, knowing that there are more outsiders than there are insiders. One of the things that is part of that is, you know, and it comes back to the contradictions that we talked about earlier in terms of wanting to be the outsider and resenting being an insider. I mean, it's the Woody Allen, Groucho Marx line. I don't want to belong to any club that would have me as a member. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of that uh, to, to Nixon. Nixon had no sense of humor, but but if he had one, he he, he would say something like that. Uh, you know, it, it it works. I mean, part, one of the great things about America, America is in a way, whole idea of America is of outsiders coming here. You know, coming immigrants who've been outsiders, leaving their country, driven from their country to start anew. And Nixon from California, a state that really understood that. Uh, you know, taps into that. Now, a lot of that's a really noble tradition in American politics. 
Now, it can also be abused. Nixon knew how to play on fear and resentment. He played on the fear of outsiders against insiders. A lot of that's not pretty when he's talking about Jewish broadcast executives. That kind of thing is ugly. But, uh, you know, both those strains, the positive self-made man, American renewal, the positive strain, and the uglier part of populism, which is running on the dark side of fear, those are both in Nixon. Was Nixon a racist? Was he an anti-Semite, do you think, after listening to all those tapes? Oh, boy. Um, my short answer is yes. But like everything about Nixon, I, I keep so I apologize for using this word, complicated. You know, he, he said, look, he, he obviously had a lot of smart Jewish advisors, like Henry Kissinger and Bill Sapphire, Arthur Burns, the head of the Fed. Now, when I say that, Particularly some of my Jewish friends say, oh, come on, <laughs> you know, come on. Um, and I say, okay, okay, you're right. Uh, uh, but but I, don't, I don't think, you know, Nixon, so much of Nixon is bluster that it's really kind of hard to know. And Nixon, on, on race, Nixon, you know, he could say some racist things. He said once, uh, you know, those people just out of the trees, you know, just horrible stuff on the tapes. But you look at what he did. Remember John Mitchell Famously, his attorney general said, watch what we do, not what we say. An example would be desegregation. Nixon played this whole Southern strategy, appealing, pandering to white voters in the South, and yet he desegregated Southern schools. He did it quietly, but very efficiently. The numbers don't lie. About 10% of black kids went to integrated schools when he came in, and within a couple of years, 70 or 80%. So that's a big change, and Nixon did that himself. He understood that that blacks needed economic support. He was in favor of affirmative action. He said to Haldeman, you know, these black kids aren't going to be able to go to Pally High, Palisades High, then middle class high school or Whittier College, unless we help them. And he did. Uh, so it's, it's uh, you know, yes, I, my short answer is yes, racist, anti-Semite, yes. But you got to look at what he did as well. In many ways, though, what he did, was, you could argue, was politically calculated because he had it both yeah. ways. He got credit for, for, for integrating. He got credit for these commissions that he set up all around the country. And yet at the same time, it fed into his southern political strategy. Yeah. He, yes, I mean, was Nixon expedient? You bet. <laughs> I mean, on, on big time. On that particular example, it's a little complicated because, I'm sorry to keep using that <laughs> word, uh, uh, on the desegregation, they did that under the radar screen. The press was not paying attention to those, com you mentioned these commissions. He pointed, deep south states, every deep south state had a commission and they of, of people from the Klan to black militants to work out a solution to desegregate the schools. It got almost no publicity at the time. It was done under the radar screen. All the publicity was about Nixon's rhetoric, which was against mandatory school busing and was catering. Uh, so, you know, what he did and what he said were often different things. What he publicized and what he didn't were different. The press was lazy. I know this. I was in the press for 33 years. Reporters are lazy. And they missed some of the stuff that he was doing. He, he could be good about manipulating the press. Well, he was until he wasn't, until, until the press got him. Finally, in, in the little time we have left, I want to talk about Nixon's just dogged determination, which is certainly part of, of rising from where he came from, from the poverty that he came from, to being vice president before he was 40 years old, the, the determination of his political comeback, and even the, the degree of that that you see, and you talk about this, in his courting of, of Pat Nixon. 
Yeah, I love this detail. Pat Nixon was a knockout beauty when she was young. You know, we had we see these photos of her looking strained, but she was. I have a photo in the book of them as as uh, in the early fifties. She is gorgeous, and he was like the guy who couldn't believe his good luck getting a pretty girl. So when he was courting her, he would drive her on dates with other to other guys. He would drop her off at the other guys' house, then he'd go wait in the hotel lobby and then drive her home. Who does that? It just and he he gradually wore down. It took a couple of years, but she finally came around to seeing his better qualities. I think she really did love him. I think their marriage was strained uh, in the presidency, certainly during Watergate. I think they were both drinking a little bit too much, and were as you can imagine what the White House was like in the last year of of of, of Watergate. But there was a it was a love match. It took her a while to see his qualities, but she did see it. She supported him, and the photograph of him at her. Funeral, I think it's 1992. He's not just crying; he's bawling. He is completely undone by the loss of his his beloved wife. He also loved the idea of crises. I mean, his his first book about his you know six crises. I mean, he loved this idea of being in the crucible. Yeah, he, he did. He it was it, 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 crisis. He wanted to make crisis normal. For Richard Nixon, crisis was kind of normal. He <laughs> he lurched from crisis to crisis. But he wanted to turn a potentially negative thing or a fearful thing into a positive by making it kind of a rocket fuel. He'd say staying up late and even being short or snappish with your staff, that's a sign that you're being stimulated, you're being motivated, you're doing your best work. I think that was true for him. He did do his best work in crisis. He could be very cool in, you know, for such a blurter and a loudmouth. He could be very cool in crisis, lower his voice. When he was negotiating an arms deal, with Brezhnev and the Soviet Union, when he's talking to Mao and Cho and Lai in China, he's cool. He's a cool hand. So he could be very good in crisis. But then, of course, he would revert to being uh, kind of a blurting fool at, at other times. It, it just depended when, when you got him. But crisis was bound up in his being and his existence, and he tried to make it his friend. Evan Thomas, the book is Being Nixon, A Man Divided. Evan, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks, Jeff. Really appreciate it. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.